0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Genealogy Adventures. My name is Brian Sheffy,
1: And I'm Donya Williams. How are you doing today?
0: We, as always, hope that you're having an amazing Sunday. And as always, thank you for sharing this next hour with us.
1: Yes, thank you so very much. Thank you so very much.
0: (laughs) So today, I guess this is kind of a show for genealogy geeks. Um, And I'm proud to say that I am, I'm even raising my hand, I am a genealogy geek, especially when it comes to records.
1: (laughs) I think I am, but I I don't know how much, but I I am.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I'm just hoping that everyone's going to find the show as interesting as as I do, because we very rarely get to get a peek behind the curtains when it comes to digitizing, not just an entire county's records, but an entire state's records. I mean, that's quite an undertaking. So without further ado, I'd love to welcome Rosemary McFarland to the show. Rosemary is the Vice President for Membership for the Kentucky Genealogy Society and is in charge of the project that we're going to talk about today. She became interested in genealogy when she learned that she was related to both the feuding Hatfields and McCoys, and you know I'm going to ask a question about that at some point. And (laughs) she and her husband live on a farm in Anderson County, Kentucky, and Big welcome to the show, Rosemary.
2: Thank you for having us.
0: It's a pleasure to have you here. And sorry, there's a slight well, I audio can't wait delay. To
2: share what we're doing
1: with you.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I
1: was getting ready to say there is a slight audio delay with Rosemary, guys. So please be patient as we go through. Um, the discussion with her today.
0: So I might as well get the Hatfield and McCoy out of the way before we, before we delve delve into Kentucky records. So how did, I mean, what was it like actually discovering through genealogy that you related not to just one side of that feud, but both sides of that feud?
2: I was scared to death what I was going to find out. My, uh, paternal grandmother was a McCoy. And her mother really was Hatfield. So it turned out that um, it was a very interesting family. I didn't have the pleasure of getting to know them because they passed away many, many, many decades before I was born. But my father took us back to the Tug Valley area and I was able to meet with a lot of our, our relatives and uh, learn. We were quite a colorful crew.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So wait a minute. So why did the fight happen? Like what started the whole thing? Do you know?
2: Honey, there are so many stories of the stolen pig is probably the most famous one. Wow. But there was just a lot of dissension between the two families over a lot of timberland. And uh, that I really think is what started all of it.
0: So competing business interests, in other words.
2: Amen. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, can you tell us a little bit about the um, Kentucky Genealogy Society and the kind of projects that that it works on?
2: Our society was formed in 1973. A gentleman moved from Iowa and had been part of a large society there, found we had nothing in Kentucky like it. So, he and a group of very interested individuals formed this society that's still going on today. We have about 1140 members. We have really grown since we have um, moved to a new website and it's, it's really helped a lot with drawing people to, to the records that we have. Um, with the projects, we have about six that are ongoing right now. The one that we talked about the most is the secretary of state's automobile records and people looked at me and said, why would you digitize those records? If you're looking for a relative that missed the census, look at unusual records, voter registration, your auto church records. So the, um, archivist at the Kentucky department of library and archives contacted us and said, we've got some records that are very old. Some of the books are fragile and we'd like to get them digitized. So I began looking at types of scanners that we could purchase that were easily mobile that would allow us to digitize a fairly large book. Uh, Found it, the society allowed me to purchase it, and we went in. The records go from 1910 to 1921. There are 41 volumes. And it was really interesting to open them up and see that in 1910, Doctor Wash that lived in Anderson County purchased a Buick, and he paid five dollars in taxes. If you hadn't known anything about your relative and saw that, you can put them at a set location, a city, and you know they must have had some money if they could have afforded a car. Well, you just beat so me to it because that's the I- reason that we were in.
0: I, you just beat me to it because I was going to ask when you're seeing an unusual record like that for for a purchase and in, in an early purchase of an automobile, can we infer kind of um, the level of disposable income that a family that a family could have?
2: Yes, and the more I scanned and digitized, I would see doctors purchasing cars, uh, and when I looked up the cars. Some of them were the higher ends, they were Cadillacs, and there were even mm. some electric cars that shocked the dickens out of me <laughs> that you would have an electric car way back then. Um, uh, there were a lot of cities that would purchase the vehicles. I, um, I remember all the cities in Louisville that purchased vehicles, they would purchase uh Buicks or um was trying to think, some unusual names I'd never heard of. So I had to go look all these cars up to see what they looked like. But you could, you could infer a great deal with that.
0: Cool. And the other question that I had for you is, I've gotten back into researching in Kentucky, um, especially for private, cli- for private clients, um, hiring us to do the work. And there are parts of Kentucky that, well, there's a lot of Kentucky that was very, very rural. And the records are very, diff- there's, it's doubtful if official records were even raised for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess in terms of the records that your society has handled, that your society is, is, is digitizing, are there things like, and again, because these were very remote parts of Kentucky, there wasn't really even a local, a formal local government. So I'm thinking, Trying to preempt a question, um, where did people in the, those really rural parts of Kentucky kind of leave a paper trail, evidence of for themselves to document things like deaths or marriages?
2: Many times, if you'll look at the larger county, their newspapers will mention. Aunt Sarah passed away in Breathitt County. Now that's Eastern Kentucky and there are a lot of records that you don't find. One thing I would tell people is to contact the Kentucky Department of Library and Archives because as counties grew, they weren't able to keep a lot of these old records. Some counties, heaven forbid, ditched them, just threw them out because they didn't have Mm -hmm. places to locate them. Other Mm -hmm. counties would send them to Frankfurt. So that would be, I would recommend to people that be their first contact is KDLA. The second would be the Kentucky historical society. They have many of the records that have been microfilmed, and they are in the process of digitizing many of their records contact the county clerk because some counties like Russell still have a lot of their records at the courthouse. That's where my husband's people are from. And I went down and saw all of the marriage bonds, all of the land records, the tax records, they were all right there. So if you don't have luck at the county level, go to KDLA. Also, if you need land records, the Kentucky Secretary of State has a tremendous website. And she has worked, Candy Atkinson is the uh, lady in charge of the records. Candy has worked diligently over the years to digitize many of those. And they have a fantastic website that has the land grants, uh, the warrant, uh, the grants, uh, the military record grants. So if that's one place that you can go and you can honestly download the record from there, or if you need further help, that office will help.
0: Mm -hmm. And the other challenge that I just love about Kentucky is, you know, it was settled fairly early. There's a crazy number of boundary changes. And you really have to understand Mm -hmm. those boundary changes to even stand a hope of Mm -hmm. identifying the right place to find the right set of records. And before we even Mm -hmm. started the show, you and I were chatting about how Kentucky was part of Virginia. And sometimes you have to understand Mm -hmm. where that line was in Virginia, um, because the records may not be in Kentucky. They actually may be in Virginia. Is there any advice that you can give people on how to kind of navigate all of those boundary changes?
2: There are two sites that you can go to. The Kentucky Historical Society has on their site the formation of counties. So you can go back and look and say, oh, I'm looking for a record in Greenup County in 19, or 1810. Well, since it was formed in 1803 that would be there but that will also tell you their parent county they also they have all that also newberry has maps such as that you can go online and look up all of those so that's that's how i would most do it i'm in the process of trying to find a link to put to our site so that individuals will be able to see County formations. Another thing is I want to add a county by county history. So that's one of the projects that's kind of in the works of having 120 links and <laughs> having information on where are these records and is there a society there and you know to whom do you contact? to find things. I think that will help a lot of people find records.
1: Um, really, really quick. Could you restate those names that you called out again?
0: Oh, were those uh, the organizational the names?
1: Historical organizational names, yes.
2: Okay. The Kentucky Historical Society will have your maps, and a lot of microfilmed information on Kentucky. Also, the the Newberry maps. Uh, you might even look at some of the Draper manuscripts for information. There are a lot of great records there.
1: Okay, and is that information on you guys' website?
2: It's on the Kentucky Historical Site. I haven't had. Okay. We, as I said, we just migrated to a new website, so there are a lot of things I haven't had a chance to get put onto it yet. Um, but it will be. Okay. Yes.
0: Oh, the the joys and the challenges of moving from one website to another. It's <laughs> it's 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 never fun. Oh
1: yeah,
0: it's never fun. So the project that um I reached I will, out to you about on. Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
2: No, I was just going to say the company that we moved to has been fantastic. So they've made our move really
0: easy. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. So the project that I stumbled across on Twitter that got me all excited and <clears throat> I reached out to you about, can you give the um, our audience, a, I guess, a, a brief kind of uh, background about how that project came to be and, and what's entailed in the project?
2: one of the archivists from the department of library and archives contacted us about digitizing these very fragile books. And I mean, they're not small. They are like this and like that, if you could see my hands move. So (laughs) moving them was going to be an issue, but it was important enough to gather the information to put out for individuals. So after I purchased the scanner, uh, one of our past presidents went with me and we each scanned two books and it took pretty much all day to scan the books because I wanted them to be... The scanner allowed me to... Uh, make the pages flat. Then I was able to go in and rename my images. It allowed me to save them as JPEGs or TIFFs. And I would recommend anybody that's going to scan to put on a website, do them as a TIFF or a TIFF. That allows you to go back and crop that image and it's not going to lose its appearance where a JPEG will fade over time. And I took with me uh, a notebook. I have this habit of writing down page numbers and the first name or the first car, whatever was on the page, because images have a way of getting out of line. And I wanted to keep everything in order. And not all of the pages in this book were numbered. So I wanted to try to keep this as accurate as possible. Um, Went back, gathered all of the images, re-imaged, cropped, whatever we need to do to pictures, and then transcribed them so that individuals could see what was in there. If their relative, they're looking for a certain name, they could go in and automatically say, oh yeah, John Walsh did have a car. So they could go look for that. That probably took the longest amount of time and the scanner that we purchased would allow you to look at the entire image and do an optical character recognition. So that's important for some people. Mm -hmm. Um, I've only been able because of COVID to get to the library to do four of the, 20, 20, uh, excuse me, 41 volumes. I'm hoping mm. to go back next week and do a few more.
0: So in terms of the kind of um, the scanning process, so you're you know you were talking us through, roughly through what the process entails. So when it comes to cleaning up the document, One, will there be an index for each one of the books? So people kind of know at least the the names that are in there. And the second part is, will they be searchable by name?
2: Yes. Yes. Oh,
0: that's excellent.
2: Uh, On the website website right now, I have uh, four volumes. I've broken them into quarters like you know January to April and whatever so that um it was easier to put them on the website it didn't crash the first time I wanted to put the whole thing on there um and those are indexed so um people will be able to see the image and the index so they can download whatever they would wish to download um Some of the images from time to time after you would crop them still wouldn't be real clear. So I used a uh, program from VividPix called Restore that allowed me to go in and either lighten or darken the text so that it was more readable for for us. Mm
0: -hmm. Yes, because when it it comes to scanning, it's not necessarily straightforward. There can be quite substantial cleanup that has Thank to be you. done. So I, I can appreciate the diligence and the time that that took. But just for a minute, TIFFs are like the one, which is a type of file form, digital file format, which are excellent for printing by the way, but they are huge. And you're talking about 41 enormous yes. books. What kind of server do you have that you can store? I mean, first of all, in terms of, it must, be, it must be terabytes. We're not even talking about gigabytes anymore. We have now moved into terabytes. I mean, what size server do you need to save all of that on?
2: We have such a fantastic website that uh, we aren't worried about that. Firespring is the company, and they are taking care of all of that for us. So, oh, wow, I'm just putting out the best quality mm-hmm. that we can, and mm-hmm. they will tell me, Rosemary, I think you need to change a little bit. So, until they do, I'm going to keep going with the tip. Yeah, wow, I uh, try to, Donnie crop and I them have... pictures, though, Brian, as small mm-hmm. as I can before I save them, I try to crop them so that the files aren't. You know real huge
0: but i mean donnie and i have seen those enormous books i mean we've seen them and it's like doing it's like doing a bicep curl just just to pick those puppies up
1: (laughs) i mean Um, anybody who has gone to you know historical societies and have to go and look in art or in archival places where they have those big books those books are humongous and jesus i can't imagine I can't so I'm... Like right now with the pain that I have in my right arm, there's no way I could pick up one of those
0: books. <laughs> and Donnie, you must be wondering the same thing I am. I mean, if that's the size we know the size of the books. I'm just trying to picture the size of the scanner. That's the necessary. scanner has
1: to be has to be like the size of my
2: bed. <laughs> it's like a huge queen size bed. It it's really not. Isn't. We purchased no. In fact, it weighs about three pounds. It's called a Caesar, C-Z-U-R. It um, uh, will scan up to a size A3 book with no problems. As I said, it weighs about three to four pounds. It has side lights. It allows you to uh, save it to your desktop, to an external drive to a drop box, to a cloud. So when I go in and I plug this in and set it up, I'm ready to go. What? It has everything in one box that's very easy to carry. And that was one of the reasons we went with it because we could do postcards, letters, books, any, pretty much anything. Now, if it was something that was overly large, then we would have to go to probably the University of Kentucky and use their cradle scanner, which is, you know, the tens of thousands of dollars that no society has, but this scanner is portable. Societies could afford it to take it and hold a scanning day, go to your library and say, if you have family Bibles bring them we'd love to scan them or Mm. you know artifacts that i want to have scanned and that's what we did uh to get our family bible uh pages started you're gonna make me
1: go to work tomorrow and find out what the name of the scanner is at my job because i work at the daughters of the american revolution so now i want to know what the name of the scanner is at our job I'm just curious.
2: The one that that we purchased, they have one that weighs about a pound that will do certain things and then it moves up. I mean, if you have letters and postcards, if you have a flip pal or if you have a, a flatbed scanner, those are great to scan those type of items. But when you have to travel, the scanner that I I just talked to you about is great to use. I Mm. put the box in the car and I go, I don't have to have anybody help me with it. It's easy to set up, hooks to my laptop and we go. Mm -hmm.
0: So we have an audience member, Linda Gone. She was asking about who was the website builder, if you don't mind answering that again. And do you use WordPress? as your publishing platform.
2: Fire Spring out of Nebraska is the company that we went to, to do our new website. And they use WordPress. Um, they have different packages. They can do your email marketing, they can do your donations. They can do a number of things, or they can just do the website setup itself. Fantastic support people. I, I would highly recommend anybody, even a society that wants to set up a website to contact them. They can tell you what they can or could not do. Uh, there were some files that we had on our website that did not transfer well to theirs so we had to come up with a different format and we were able to but they're very easy to work with
0: Well, problem solving and genealogy go together like a hand in a glove. So it sounds like <laughs> it sounds like Dang you it. had some of that to do.
1: <laughs> yeah. So we do have another question from a woman named Hope Godish, Hope Whitman Godish. She says, Um, my dad was born in Cave City, Kentucky in nineteen oh seven, and can't find any records of his birth anywhere. Any records. Any suggestions. <laughs>
2: You have hit that blessed time period in Kentucky when not all counties kept birth records. It wasn't until 1911 that most counties were required to keep some type of record. Your best bet would be to look at the newspapers in and around Cave City. And the reason I'm saying that is many times they would have little columns where they would mention Mr. and Mrs. McFarland had a son, John Herbert, that weighed 10 pounds in Jamestown. Mm, Okay. Jamestown's not even Mm. in that county. But they, they will mention it. Contact the churches in the area. They will have records of births. Even go to the next county. That's the one thing about Kentucky. We shared information. Look and see where some of the other family members lived. Because it may be that it was mentioned there that my sister that lives in Cave City had a child. Um, if, if your relative was in the war, if he was born in 1907, chances are you're going to look at World War II, the draft records. They listed birth dates there. That will at least give you something to start with. Um, It's not an actual like DAR type document that they would need, but it is a link for you. That sounds like how African-Americans
1: sometimes had to find their families because they needed to mm-hmm. use like um birth, you know, marriage documents, you know, some an, marriage announcements or mm-hmm. even birthing announcements because that was happening with, I can date that to my, my grandparents learning about uncles or aunts that were born or things of that nature. And they were born 1915, 1914 or, or what have you. And the birthing announcements were being done in the African-American newspapers or something like that. So, yeah, that's that's the same thing that happened with a lot of African-Americans, too.
0: And I've got a left field one. Awesome. Um, good. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was going
2: oh, to say. Just- also look at family Bibles mm, because yeah. families recorded births Yeah. and that's, I mean, it's a secondary source, but it can also be a primary source of information. Yeah. Um, we have transcribed a lot of family Bibles, um, and going back to this person was born in 1740 and they had these children and they married this person we were able to trace a lot of families by doing, by doing that. Mm-hmm.
0: And a left field entry. So in my father's Virginia side of the family, we have a, a circuit preacher by the name of um, brother Robert Robert Sawyer's Sayers Sheffy. And he, because he was literate, he could read and he could write. He was going into the really remote parts of Tennessee and Kentucky. And he would write in his journal who he christened, whose children he christened. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. So again, he
0: was, he was doing that amongst a population right. that was largely illiterate. And one of his journals is one we know we have one of his journals. I don't. His descendants do. but we know he had others and we're trying trying to find them. So it may be worth um, researching who the circuit preachers were in the county that your ancestors lived in mm-hmm. Kentucky, to see if they they actually noted christenings, marriages, all of that.
2: Yeah, that's a good one. Oh, I'd love to have access to those records. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I, I promise, if we do find some um, more of the Kentucky ones, I'll happily pass those over to you.
2: Oh, please. I'll be so glad to put them up and give you credit for it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So we have um, um, another question more on the um, scanner side. And it's by Linda Gore again. And she said, does the OCR function read the handwriting in the books as well?
2: I have yet to do that, but in the reading of the information they sent me, it did because it said it would read the actual documentation. So um, I can try it and let her know, or she can contact uh, the company and they will tell her 100%. Okay, Mm -hmm. all right.
0: And I'm I'm really curious because I've been blessed to be able to go to the British National Library and actually handle very, very old documents. We're talking documents that were written in like 1400s, 1500s, we're in a sterile room that's environmentally mm-hmm. controlled, we have masks. we have gloves. What is it like, mm-hmm. one, actually looking at these really old documents, but two, to actually, what do you have to do when you're actually handling them?
2: I make it a practice of carrying a kit with me, and I have white gloves, I have uh, the uh, nitrile gloves. I keep um, pencils, things I take with me. When I pick up one of the older books, I always make sure I have the gloves on. When I lay it down, I try to touch the pages with the gloves as little as possible. I don't want anything from my hands getting on there to dull the pages. Um, the, The ones that are very frail, I will honestly take both hands and turn it over on the scanner so that I don't, you know, further damage anything. Uh, If it's too frail, I will take my cell phone and that's another thing you can use. Cell phones have tremendous capabilities with their cameras now to take pictures. So if you can't take, a scanner into a library, take your cell phone. It will take a a good enough picture Mm -hmm. that even though it's a JPEG, you can save it as a TIFF in a lot of these uh, processing programs. So you'll have a better image of it. Also, when people are working with images, never work with the original. Always work with a copy. Right. Because you can do anything you want to to that copy. But if you crop that original and then you realize you cut off the dates on the bottom of it, there's nothing you can do. With the copy, you know, you can always go back and redo it. So that's why I'm saying try to save it as a TIFF because you don't lose it. If you have to copy it four or five times you're not going to lose that image quality right right um we have another question
1: from dr denise she said thank you thank you so much i have two ancestors from kentucky dating back in 1804 that are later in louisiana would i be able to find anything on them In 1804 is basically what she's asking. I
2: I think it would depend where in Kentucky they were. I'm not going to say she won't. Um, But once again, I would go back to uh, if there was a newspaper there, I would go back to uh, even Mm -hmm. the order books or the minute books from the courts to see if there was any legal actions that they were taking. Uh, Yeah. The churches that were there at the time. So, yes, there are records from 1804. In fact, one of the projects that we're working on now was an order book from Lewis County, Kentucky, and that's northeastern Kentucky. It was thought to be lost. There was a flood And a lot of the records were lost, but one of our members was going through some records and found it. So we are now in the process of transcribing it to put it on the website. And it's amazing when you go in and read what people took each other to court for, uh, (laughs) things that that, names that you find. So, I mean. I've been a little amazed. But yes, there are records that can be found. Uh, If she has particular counties, contact KDLA, the Kentucky Department of Library and Archives. And they will tell you if they have information, Department of Library and Archives. And they will tell you if they have any records for that area in that time period.
1: And you know a lot of and people don't realize. Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: No, go ahead, finish saying what you're saying. No, I was just gonna say she can send you know an email to to me or to us and I can tell her if I know if there are county records available um for her to, to search. Uh KDLA though should be able to you know pretty quickly tell her what's there.
1: Yeah, and a lot of people don't realize how much information is actually in newspapers. I mean, Brian and I we mm-hmm. my you know, especially the whole genealogy adventures team we live in the newspaper. <laughs> we, we 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 just we do we live in the newspaper. The newspaper is social media back then. And mm-hmm. and not only, like you said, like when you were talking about how, you know, you shared the information from one t- town to the next or whatever, you know, how you were saying that, that's literally what mm-hmm. they did. Like, take Moses, for example, his information, the man died in 1884, but his information was continually being shared in as late as 19, what, 21? Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it was. Yep. It was still being shared about this man who lived to be 115, 116 years old and the fact mm. that he had 45 children. And this is so confusing. Confusing for other people nowadays when they find it to the point where I actually got into a slight argument with the man because he was like, oh, that's a different person. And I'm like, sir, read the article because it's the exact same article from 1884. it's the exact same article wording is the same there is no change no difference nothing so you gotta you know really pay attention and then there's john yeldale this man's information passed from the east coast to the west coast there was all all his information that was a, a cousin of my um he was closer a cousin to my grandfather. He was like my grandfather's second cousin so many times removed, um, who was told that he, you know, who was said to have murdered someone. And it just, he changed his name. It's, it's a fat, fantabulous story. And mm-hmm. when I tell you it traveled, he was literally New York times said he was the most talked of colored man in the land more famous than frederick Douglass during that time for a month they posted him as that and his story over 500 articles about him and it literally went from the east coast to the west coast he was like social media he was trending during that time Mm -hmm. and it was amazing you know so newspaper articles are of that time are something that people really need to start really reading Mm -hmm. they need to just go and just pick up a newspaper and you will Mm -hmm. you it is almost impossible not to find your your ancestor in there some kind of way one way or another you may find something about Mm -hmm. your ancestor maybe good maybe bad dealing with where our people come from it probably leans on the bad side (laughs) But I mean, you know,
2: understand that
1: one, right? But it's just, it's it's so crazy. Edgefield, South Carolina, was 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 a hot mess. Whether you were black, white, Native American, it didn't matter. The area itself was a hot mess. So you learned some stuff from that area, Mm -hmm. but overall, I mean, it newspapers were social media back then, and. Mm Court cases, those are things, those are those outside mm-hmm. sources that people really need to need to look into when you, mm-hmm. you know, when you're doing your research.
0: And also because you also get a sense of their personality and their characteristics. Mm-hmm. I have an ancestor, a direct ancestor in Virginia, late colonial period. His name was Wicked Willie Price. Mm-hmm. I'm like, why why was grandpa called Wicked Willie? What did what did he do? well i went to I found where those colonial newspapers were, and I started reading accounts and i'm like okay yeah by the by the standards of your day, you were pretty wicked, but yeah. I got much more of a sense of who he was and kind of what he was about and mm-hmm. he may have played a bit fast and loose um he was he was definitely part of the wild bunch, but um, it was more interesting than just reading his tax lists and how many horses and cows and sheep." And enslaved people, Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, It it really did add flesh to the bone. So I I will always love newspapers.
1: Yes. (laughs) And uh, Sharon McMillan Herbert, she says, So even if we aren't looking for family members in Kentucky, we can still make a habit of looking for newspapers in areas where we know the person lived or were born as a source of some info. Thank you. And yes, yeah. Because you may find something about somebody else. I mean when we were Mm -hmm. doing the whole thing about Moses and I was looking for Moses Jr. I wasn't wasn't looking for Moses Sr. (laughs) So it was then I found Moses. I thought when I was doing the whole thing on Moses, I was looking for Moses Jr. And I found out that this man had 45 kids. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, Okay, so I'm not doing this research on Moses Jr because this man had 45 kids. I just gave it to Brian and I'm like, "Okay, I'm just showing you this, but I'm not doing the research on it." And Brian was like, "Oh, okay." And then Brian goes in newspapers and he turns around and he finds the obituary. And I'm looking at the date and I'm like the age and it said he died and it the news the the obituary note was 1884 and I'm like, 115 subtracted from 1884, Moses Jr. was born around 1790 something, but 1884 and 115 subtracted from that, that's 1760 something, that's not correct, and I said, that age is off, he said, no, that's his father, and I was like, oh, no, 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 I'm not doing that, no, (laughs) and that's when we realized we found Moses senior. So that was just us reading. And we were just reading and we fell onto that. You know, we just dropped. It all just dropped in our mm-hmm. lap. So, you know, yeah, yeah, yes. Sharon, you just read. You just go and just start reading yes. and don't blame me and brian if you find some outlandish stuff just because you heard us say this too but after the fact don't blame you us w-
0: you will you don't know what you're you don't know what you're gonna find
1: it's not our fault That's all I'm saying.
0: <laughs> so one question that i'm kind of surprised we haven't seen i was kind of anticipating this one for Kentucky. Can you talk a little bit about the part of Kentucky that, well, all of Kentucky was Native territory at one point, but as we said, you know, as, as uh, Louisville was established and that kind of started to grow and morph out, can you talk a little bit about the the counties that stayed, I suppose, Native American the longest and when peop- um, any kind of records that people might be able to to find for that?
2: Native Americans Mm
0: -hmm. in Kentucky.
2: Yeah. The the speaker we had one time that talked about Indian records in Kentucky. She was um, from Oklahoma. And she mentioned the fact that looking at the dolls records would tell you that's a way to be able to trace whether your ancestors were from, say, Cherokee tribes, or, as I found in one of my relatives, it kept saying N.T. And I said, what's N.T.? The new territory, the Oklahoma Territory. So you need to know whether they were Eastern Cherokee or whether they were part of the Trail of Tears movement that moved the tribes from the Carolinas into Kentucky and then you know to Oklahoma but um, your doll's rolls would be would be probably the best there Um, I'm not sure of any others but there I would go once again I would go back to KDLA or I would go to the Kentucky History uh, mm-hmm. Center, They're in Frankfort, Kentucky, they will they will have access to those records.
0: Oh, thank you! And again, this is just the added complexity of Kentucky as a place. We've already kind of we've already covered about the the connection mm-hmm. with Virginia. Then you've got Kentucky, Tennessee, and that north kind of western part of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And again, you you know you've got flow through of, of people. Mm-hmm going through that corridor. So, so how tricky is it to, to research that bit mm-hmm. of Kentucky?
2: It's, that's, that's my area. I have, my husband's people came from um, Pennsylvania, came into Virginia, settled in North Carolina. Then after the Revolutionary War, they got a land grant. So they moved toward Tennessee and they settled in Green County for a little while. And then they moved into the Cumberland area. And that's where their thousand acres was. But finding records sometimes for exactly where they lived in either Green or Fentress County or Campbell County has been a little challenging. So I'm there i'm i'm going to go to each courthouse because i want to see the land records the plat maps those things to honestly mm-hmm. plot out where they lived and and trace that movement <laughs>
0: The other document that I wanted to talk about is I've, I had seen a reproduction, uh, a digitization of a bounty, war, a, bount, a, le, a bounty land warrant. And for those who are tuning into the show who aren't familiar with these terms, that's what patriots got for their service. And I believe the people who fought in the War of 1812 also qualified for, for bounty land. But this one was a really early one produced for Kentucky. First of all, it was a beautiful document just the the paper that it was on, the handwriting, the I mean, they took great care to produce these documents. And I mean, I don't expect you to give us a finite number, but are there a lot of those that, that still exist in Kentucky?
2: What we have is on, most likely has been scanned and is on the Secretary of State's website. She has the warrants and the land records there, uh, I know they're numerous. I, I've seen the one that was like I was talking about that was given to uh, Benjamin McFarland. So it was it was neat to see actually see it and know that, wow, at one time you owned a thousand acres on Greasy Creek in what's now you know okay. Russell County, Kentucky. And I thought, why did you ever get rid of this land? you know, but uh, it it's it's just amazing when you start tracing the document like you were talking about, where they had the land, who did it go to, what did the land become? It's just to me that's all that's fascinating.
1: Yeah. Um, so Hope Whitman came back again, and she said back to Cave City again. <laughs> She said, is there much information on the 1870 tornado floods in that area?
2: Once again, Hope, go to your newspapers.
1: They're going to have
2: accounts of all of that type of information. Even, um, I would even go look at the Louisville Courier-Journal because they would have write-ups of, you know, events that happened at that time period. Um, that's a pretty big story. So your major newspapers would have something like that.
1: Yeah, I would definitely say that. Um, also, our goal, as always, is to get people to to move forward and to try to to do research in those areas and we did that with Yokota Strong he said I also have a third great grandfather Richard Dick Waller that was born in Kentucky in 1825 but ended up in Louisiana as well this show has inspired me to look more into where he came from in Kentucky thank you so we definitely got somebody to start looking in Kentucky for their research and that's awesome <laughs>
0: Yeah, I'm still trying to work out the major routes that people would have taken to get from Kentucky down further south, like Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana.
2: Yeah. Contact Sherry Daniels at the Kentucky Historical Society. Sherry just did presentation on migration routes to Kentucky. She's a national speaker. Uh, she does an excellent presentation on just that, that topic, and um, she showed us a few maps the other day of people migrating and also immigrating from those same routes to and from Kentucky down into the South, so she probably could answer a lot of your questions.
0: Thank you very much, and her name again is?
2: Sherry C. H. R I Daniels.
0: Okay, thank you for that.
2: Oh you're welcome.
0: Oh, awesome. I just thought just saw a link a link go up, so that's good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know I've try to be on it. I try. <laughs> I try. So in
0: the clo- so in the closing we minutes have- of the, the sh- Oh, no, go ahead. Uh, Please continue.
2: (laughs) No, I was just going to say we've got a number of grants that we have recently put up on the website that deal with Carroll County, Todd County. Now, that's Northeastern and Western Kentucky, also in Louisville that will have a lot of information for people. Um, the dues to join our society are $20 for the year. So to be able to look at a lot of those records, if that saved you travel, that $20 would be well worth it. Uh, and we'll be posting others. The diaries and records that we have are all on that site. And if we can help someone, then we will. Awesome. Awesome.
0: Well, again, I just get this impression that this has really been a labor of love for, for basically your team, um, everyone who's been involved in it.
2: Oh, it has. I have 40 volunteers. Nobody's paid. It's just all they do. I've, I've asked them if you can give me an hour and you can do five pages of something or if you can do Anything. It helps to get that project rolling. And we have had just a tremendous group of people. And as you said, I love it. I love finding out where people began their lives and what they did, how they did it and what they left for us to see. So Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm game to scan just about anything, go anywhere that somebody wants to do.
0: <laughs> well, I really, really hope that the work that all of you have been doing is—it is, has been really championed and appreciated by your community, by your, and you know, by, by the state. It yes.
2: has, it truly has.
0: Because, you know, that, unfortunately there is a, a strand and it, it's not just this country, it, it's pretty much any country, just, you know, leave the past in the past. But I I always think that people who say that don't Mm -hmm. really understand the value of the research just for people, for ordinary people trying to find out either about their ancestors directly or a little bit more about the the times that they actually lived in.
1: Exactly. so So, Brian, you want to talk about what's coming up next week? I certainly
0: can. We are so pleased to have Rick Murphy back on the show to talk about his new uh, lineage society, which is called the Society of First African Amer- sorry, the Society of the First African Families of English America. And that is next Sunday, 4 pm, right here on E360 TV as well as Facebook Live and YouTube live
1: exactly exactly well rosemary we want to thank you for being on the show with us and just talking to us about everything that you talked to us about and sharing what you shared and just just everything thank you so much
0: yeah because kentucky is just one of those states that i i feel gets that i just feel gets overlooked you know it's a really old you know it's an old part of british you know, the British colonies, even though it was never a colony itself, but you know what I mean. You know, its history goes back a long way, even longer when you start mm-hmm. talking about Native Americans. But in terms of these records, I've always had the impression that both Tennessee and Kentucky are kind of like the overlooked children.
2: <laughs> the overlooked children. This is
0: true.
2: <laughs> but we're going to work to change that.
0: And we will help you. <laughs> yes, we will. Thanks. Oh, so until next week, next Sunday, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, this is Genealogy Adventures. I'm Brian
1: Sheffy, And I'm Donya Williams. You guys enjoy the rest of your Sunday evening. Indeed. Thank you. Bye, everyone.
0: Bye-bye.
2: Bye.